Network. This is Democracy Now! It's history in the making as Donald Trump prepares to be arraigned on over 30 counts, making him the first U.S. president to be criminally charged. We'll speak to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Johnston, who's been reporting on Trump for decades. Then voters are heading to the polls for a mayoral election in Chicago and for a critical Supreme Court election in Wisconsin. We'll talk to Mother Jones reporter Ari Berman about how this race could decide the fate of democracy in Wisconsin and the 2024 election. Then Finland joins NATO. Today is an historic day because in a few hours we will welcome Finland as the 31st member of our alliance. This will make Finland safer and NATO stronger. We'll go to Finland and Germany for a debate. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in today to face criminal charges in a New York City court. The case stems from hush money payments Trump made to adult film star Stormy Daniels days before the 2016 presidential election, just days after the release of the infamous Access Hollywood tape in which Trump brags about sex assaulting women. While the indictment remains sealed, Newsweek's reporting Trump will face 34 felony counts for falsifying business records. He is the first former U.S. president to ever be criminally charged. His arraignment hearing is scheduled for 2.15 p.m. Trump supporters, including far-right Georgia Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene, are expected to rally outside the courthouse. As head of those protests, New York City Mayor Eric Adams issued a warning to people he called rabble Control yourselves. New York City is our home, not a playground for your misplaced anger. We are the safest large city in America because we respect the rule of law in New York City. And although we have no specific threats, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is known to spread misinformation and hate speech, uh, she stated she's coming to town. After his arraignment, Trump's expected to fly back to his Florida Mar-a-Lago estate, where he'll speak publicly tonight. We'll have more on Trump after headlines with Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter David K. Johnston. The government of the Philippines has announced the location of four new U.S. military bases. The sites will be on the island of Luzon, facing north towards Taiwan, and on Palawan, near the disputed Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. This comes after the Biden administration in February reached an agreement with the administration of Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos, Jr. to give the U.S. access to the military bases amidst rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. Protesters have condemned the move, demanding U.S. troops leave the Philippines. Syrian state media reports two civilians were killed overnight as Israeli missile strikes hit the capital, Damascus. Video of the attack appears to show a defense system hitting several targets in the sky with audible explosions. It was reportedly the fourth attack by Israel on Damascus in recent days and followed the deaths of two Iran-affiliated fighters in, Iran in an airstrike Sunday. In Tehran, thousands of people gathered at a funeral for the two men earlier today. This is Hossein Salami, commander-in-chief of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. I will say one thing. We will definitely take revenge. 
In Russia, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has filed an appeal after he was arrested last week and charged with espionage. He faces up to 20 years in prison if convicted by a court in Moscow. On Sunday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he'd spoken with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov about Gershkovich's case, as well as that of another imprisoned American, Paul Whelan. Florida's Republican-controlled state Senate has approved a near-total ban on abortion. The measure, which is backed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, prohibits abortions in most cases after just six weeks. During a floor debate in Florida's state Senate Monday, Jacksonville Democrat Tracy Davis condemned the bill as an unprecedented government overreach into the lives of women and shared her own story of having an abortion. I refused to have anyone make me feel ashamed and to not acknowledge it. And no woman should have to feel ashamed because she decided to have an abortion. But now we're talking about a six-week abortion ban. And you've heard it from many women on this floor. Most women don't even know they're pregnant by the time they're in the sixth week. On Monday evening, at least 11 people were arrested at a pro-choice protest that erupted outside Tallahassee City Hall. Among those taken into custody were Florida Democratic Party Chair Nikki Freed and state Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book. In Tennessee, thousands of students in Nashville walked out of their classrooms Monday and marched to the state capitol, demanding lawmakers pass gun control legislation, including a ban on assault weapons. The action came one week after a shooter killed three adults and three nine-year-old students at a private Christian elementary school in Nashville. Meanwhile, Tennessee Republican leaders have removed three Democratic lawmakers from their committee assignments for participating in peaceful protests following the mass shooting. On Monday, large crowds of protesters in the gallery of the Tennessee House of Representatives erupted in chants of fascists as members of the Republican supermajority moved to permanently expel Democratic representatives Justin Jones of Nashville, Gloria Johnson of Knoxville, and Justin Pearson of Memphis. This is Representative Justin Jones. Each of us represents 78,000 people, and our people are being silenced because they're kicking us off committees. They're threatening to take a vote to expel us today. Um, our member ID badges have been shut off. Um, our, our representative ID badges have been shut off. Um, and this is not what democracy looks like. You know, we are elected to serve our constituents, and um, I'm the youngest Democratic lawmaker here uh, in the most diverse district. And by shutting me down, they're shutting down the, the voice of my constituents. The Virginia Medical Examiner's Office has confirmed that 28-year-old Ivo Otieno died by homicide by asphyxiation after he was violently pinned down and piled on by sheriff's deputies and medical staff at the Central State Hospital in Petersburg, March 6th. Otieno was a 28-year-old black man whose violent death during a mental health crisis renewed calls for police accountability. His official cause of death is listed as positional and mechanical asphyxiation with restraints. Last month, the Virginia grand jury indicted 10 people, seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers on second-degree murder charges for Otieno's killing. The Department of Justice has filed a civil lawsuit against Norfolk Southern, accusing the U.S. railroad giant of violations of the Clean Water Act over the February 3rd derailment of a freight train in East Palestine, Ohio.
The disaster led to a massive explosion in the release of toxic chemicals, including levels of dioxin hundreds of times higher than what's considered safe. Meanwhile, CNN reports seven U.S. government investigators briefly fell ill in early March while studying the possible health impacts of the disaster. The investigators with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported sore throats, headaches, coughing and nausea. Starbucks has fired another worker who led a historic union organizing campaign in 2021. Alexis Rizzo was a shift supervisor at Starbucks Genesee Street Store in Buffalo, New York, one of the first two stores in the U.S. to form a Starbucks union. She was fired just weeks after the National Labor Relations Board accused Starbucks of engaging in egregious and widespread misconduct to prevent workers from organizing, and just two days after former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz testified to Congress about the company's union-busting record. Rizzo worked at Starbucks for seven years since she was 17 years old. She told Democracy Now! her firing left her devastated. I'm going to be fighting tooth and nail to get my job back. I think it's not at all a coincidence that this happened two days after Howard Schultz had his ego bruised in front of the Senate. I, I was fired that day. Two other partners in Buffalo were fired on the same day. Another very vocally pro-union shift supervisor here was written up on the same day. And I don't think that's a coincidence whatsoever. I think Howard Schultz was trying to prove to us that he does still have power over us, and this is how he can exercise it. But it's not just that for me. It's losing my whole life. To see our interview with Jason Saxton, another Starbucks worker fired after organizing a Starbucks union, visit democracynow.org, as well as to see the confrontation between Bernie Sanders and Starbucks former CEO Howard Schultz. And Finland is formally joining NATO today in a move that doubles NATO's border with Russia. Finland and Russia share an 800-mile border. Finland's joining the military alliance a week after Turkey's parliament voted to ratify Finland's membership. Turkey and Hungary have yet to approve Sweden as a new member of NATO. The Kremlin decried Finland joining NATO as a, quote, assault on our security. We'll have more on this story with a debate later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in and plead not guilty today as becomes the first U.S. president ever to be criminally charged. While the indictment remains sealed, Newsweek's reporting Trump will face 34 felony counts for falsifying business records. The case centers in part on hush money payments Trump made during the 2016 presidential campaign to adult film star Stormy Daniels. It was days before Election Day. Trump's arraignment hearing in a New York court is scheduled for 2.15 p.m. Supporters, including Republican Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene, are expected to rally outside the courthouse. According to news accounts, Trump will be arrested and fingerprinted, but he won't be handcuffed. Video cameras will not be allowed inside the courtroom, but the judge ruled late last night five still photographers will be allowed inside briefly to take pictures. After the hearing, Trump is expected to fly back to his Florida state, Mar-a-Lago, where he'll speak publicly tonight. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is also expected to speak to the press today for the first time about the charges against Trump. We're joined now by a guest who's closely reported on Trump for decades. David K. Johnston's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and co-founder of D.C. Report. His most recent book, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. 
He also teaches at Syracuse University College of Law. David, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is an historic day, not only here in New York, but around the country. The first sitting or ex-president to face criminal charges. Talk about the significance of what's taking place today. Well, hopefully this is the beginning of a revival and a renewal of American democracy. There is an enormous amount of uh, people in America across the political spectrum who believe that we have one set of laws for the rich and powerful and one set of laws for them. And while many of the people who support Donald Trump are enraged about this indictment, the fact is that this shows that we are making further progress toward the far from fulfilled promise of equal justice under law. And this will not be the last indictment of Donald Trump. But, David, what do you say to those who who raise the point, first of all, that uh, this is probably the least important of the uh, of the uh, alleged or, or possible crimes that uh, that Trump committed, and that it took so long to bring this indictment, uh, what what's your response to that? Well, it's certainly taken an incredibly long time to bring about this indictment. Uh, Alvin Bragg, when he took office over a year ago, uh, rejected the investigation underway that the Trump organization was not a business, but a racketeering enterprise posing as a business. Uh, he has now come back with this uh, case, which you're going to see, uh, Juan, is a fabric of charges, not a single thread running from Trump to Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal, the Playboy Playmate, but a, an interwoven thread of crimes. And where does that someone get the idea that you're allowed to break this law with impunity and not that law? That, that has no principle underlying it whatsoever. Uh, in the case uh, where uh, Donald Trump's Trump organization, his payroll company, and his chief financial officer, Alan Weiselberg, who's right now behind bars, were tried, they were convicted of 17 felonies over about $1.8 million of compensation that was hidden from the tax authorities. And Donald uh, and the people around him went, well, that's nothing. Well, if you're a median wage worker in America, that's your entire career. You won't make $1.8 million. So I, I think it's outrageous to suggest, as many people are, Juan, that somehow uh, you get to take a walk on felonies because, well, it's not the biggest thing we could charge you with. That's just absurd. Uh, and the likelihood of this case being wrapped up or actually going to trial before the, uh, uh, the elections next year? Well, that's up to Donald Trump. Uh, there are speedy trial laws, both uh, here in the state court in New York and if, if and when he's indicted by the federal government. And Donald will have to make a choice. Do you want to go to trial now and get this behind you? Or do you want to risk that you're going to be on trial while you're campaigning for the White House? Now, let me be clear. Donald Trump could uh, get back to the White House, be a convicted felon, and he's still entitled to be president. I mean, at least in theory, if American voters are that out of touch with, with uh, uh, who Donald Trump really is, he could serve as president of the United States from a from a military prison or other lockup. Um, 
The issue of white-collar crime, that's what uh, Trump org, uh, Alvin Bragg got in every count, uh, very experienced former deputy attorney general. He also took on the former New York State Senate majority leader, Malcolm Smith. He was the lead prosecutor um, in charges of white-collar crime. The Republicans are making a lot of, here is Alvin Bragg, who won't take on certain issues uh, around crime, said he's not going to go after certain criminal charges with people. But when it comes to white-collar crime, uh, is an important lesson being taught here around America, crimes that are usually not prosecuted in this country? Absolutely. For a long time, I've been calling for a, a redirection in law enforcement away from street crimes, particularly nonviolent street crimes, and toward white-collar crimes, which do vastly more damage to our economy than street crimes. And Bragg is one of a number of prosecutors who've been looking at the way we've been doing things that clearly don't work and saying, well, let's try another approach to this. Uh, I've also said that our legal scholars need to undertake some serious thinking about revising white-collar crime law, which is very complex, which has lots of outs and uh, excuses and loopholes, basically, and that we need to develop a new and better theory of white-collar crime that both protects all the rights of those who are accused, but also makes it easier to show criminal conduct. And, and David, in terms of the, uh, the inevitability that some feel of uh, Trump's run to, for the Republican nomination and uh, you've been doing some analysis of his uh, uh, his crowds uh, in recent months. Could you talk about what you found versus what the the press sometimes reports or what Trump himself claims? Well, one of the things that's benefited Donald for the whole 35 years I've known him is he says things and all sorts of gullible reporters just assume that it, there's no need to check the facts. So during the uh, 2016 campaign, Bernie Sanders uh, often drew larger crowds than Donald Trump. And at his Waco rally announcing his campaign, uh, Donald Trump uh, drew an audience that he claimed was thousands and thousands. Many of the journalists covering it used this language. One TV reporter uh, said there were hundreds of people. Uh, we examined photos and uh, we asked readers to send us more images, and the crowd was larger than we initially reported, less than 1,500 people. But at most, it's, it's a few thousands of people, not, as Trump often likes to make you think, tens of thousands of people. The reality is that Donald Trump's uh, support is waning, and it is shriveling towards impotence. He doesn't even have the support of a majority of Republicans, and Republicans in America are a minority party. David K. Johnson, I wanted to go back to what Alvin Bragg said he won't prosecute. Cases like uh, marijuana misdemeanors, <clears throat> resisting arrest, fair evasion, prostitution, and more, what the Republicans are making the most of. He won't go after crime, they say, but he's going after Donald Trump. So let's talk about this white-collar crime. But over— I mean, you haven't just covered him for the last few years. You have written two full books on Donald Trump, starting with the best-selling The Making three, of Donald three. Trump. Three, three. I forgot about the last one. Um, <laughs> 
Talk about his history and what he has done and what you were shocked by that he wasn't charged with over the years. And then how this then white-collar crime fits into these other investigations, the one by the state attorney general, Letitia James, here in New York. Georgia is about overturning the election. And then the federal, um, Merrick Garland and uh, Jack Smith, of course, about the insurrection. Well, Donald first came to public light because he was uh, his his and his father's company was were steering black and Puerto Rican uh, people who wanted to rent from them. They owned, owned at the time thousands of apartments to specific buildings, and they had to submit to the jurisdiction of the federal government for a couple of years. Uh, in the Atlantic City casinos, the only known case of cheating was at a Donald Trump casino. Uh, where the customer was cheated. Uh, Donald's casinos plied 12, 13, and 14-year-old children with liquor, limousines, and hotel rooms because they had money to gamble. So we're not talking about a dolled-up 18-year-old uh, man or woman uh, slipping past the casino authorities. We're talking about sixth grader and junior high children. Uh, Donald uh, hired 400 people who, by his description, are illegal immigrants, to take down the building Bonwit Teller, with which he replaced it with uh, Trump Tower. He wouldn't pay them until they threatened to kill his uh, overseer. And when they finally did get paid, there was a mob guy sitting there forcing each of them to hand over part of their pay. Uh, Donald has lied and cheated and stolen from people left and right. He spent a decade up to his eyeballs with a major international drug trafficker for whom he did extraordinary and inexplicable favors. Nothing's ever happened to him in all of these cases. He beat four federal grand juries as a young man. Uh, he was not punished for sales tax cheating when then mayor of New York, Ed Koch, said he should go to jail for 15 days. He's just gotten away with it and gotten away with it through the techniques taught to him by the notorious Roy Cohn from the McCarthy era, who was one of his lawyers. And now, finally, Donald is being called to account. And in this case, it's very clear that Alvin Bragg and the grand jury that uh, his prosecutors are directing have had numerous witnesses come in. This is not going to be some slapdash case. Bragg would not bring a case that doesn't have really solid information. And I've written in the New York Daily News and elsewhere, you know, advisories on here would be a way to prosecute Donald Trump uh, successfully. On the other side of this, um, uh, the attacks on New York City and, and Alvin Bragg's crime policies, New York is the safest large city in America. Uh, number one, the safest large city in America and has been for a long time. And the Things that Bragg is doing are part of what I think is a historic shift that, of course, is going to be resisted uh, by people who think that white-collar crimes and wealthy white people ought to be exempted from the criminal justice system. Uh, so... Having researched all this and written three books, as we wrap up David K. Johnston, did you ever think you would see him in a criminal court making history? Yes, I... I have felt uh, I spent the last eight years of my time on Donald 24-7 not doing what I intended to do. Uh, and uh, I believed all the way along that once he started this push for the presidency, instead of prosecutors being able to say, ah, he's not an overblown, blowhard developer uh, in New York, 
he would bring himself such attention that no longer could law enforcement look the other way. But what matters here is conviction. An indictment is only a formal charge, and Mr. Trump is presumed innocent up until the day that a jury finds otherwise. Well, we want to thank you for being with us, David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, formerly with The New York Times, co-founder of D.C. Report, author of three books on Donald Trump, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. It's even worse than you think, what the Trump administration is doing to America and his 2016 best-selling book, The Making of Donald Trump. Coming up, two elections. Ari Berman on today's race that could decide the fate of democracy in Wisconsin in the 2024 election. And then Juan Gonzalez and what's happening in Chicago. Stay with us. Signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm yours, by Stevie Wonder. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York. Juan Gonzalez is in Chicago. This race could decide the fate of democracy in Wisconsin in the 2024 election. That's the headline of Mother Jones reporter Ari Berman's story about today's election in the battleground state that could determine if abortion remains illegal there, as well as the future of voting laws and redistricting. The technically nonpartisan race is for an open seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court that could flip the court's 4-3 conservative majority. Democrat-backed Janet Proteaswich is a liberal Milwaukee County judge who's facing Republican-backed Daniel Kelly, a conservative former state Supreme Court justice. Today's also a special election to fill an open seat in Wisconsin State Senate that could give Republicans a supermajority and the ability to impeach the state's Democratic governor and override gubernatorial vetoes. Voters will choose between Democrat Jody Habash-Sinkin and Republican state Republican Dan Nodal. Meanwhile, the high stakes of the election have broken Wisconsin's Wisconsin campaign spending records. For more, we're joined by Ari Berman, national voting rights correspondent for Mother Jones. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Ari, maybe you can correct some of the pronunciations of the candidates in Wisconsin, but talk about this race that you say could not only determine democracy in Wisconsin, but in the 2024 um, presidential election. Well, first off, Amy, thank you for having me. And it's Janet Protasewicz. She actually ran an ad telling people how to pronounce her name. So that's the only reason I know how to pronounce her name in the first place. This is an incredibly important race in Wisconsin, probably the most important race of the 2023 election cycle, because the Wisconsin Supreme Court race is likely to decide the future of really important issues like 
gerrymandering, voting rights, abortion rights, and possibly even the 2024 election in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has been the final word on the most important matters in the state. Conservatives have had a majority on that court since 2008. That has played a key role in the Wisconsin Republicans' effort to undermine democracy. If Janet Protasiewicz wins the election tonight, that will mean that progressives will have a majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time in two decades, and it will give them a chance to restore democracy in Wisconsin. So that's why the race is so important. And Ari, could you talk about the money that's being poured into the race and the uh, ideological groups that have spent more than $30 million on it? An incredible amount of money has poured into the race, Juan. The race has tripled the spending record for any state Supreme Court election, let alone in Wisconsin. A Protosawitz's campaign has outspent the conservative judge Dan Kelly's campaign, but outside conservative dark money groups have outspent liberal groups. And the interesting thing is that conservative candidate Dan Kelly has received money from some of the very groups and people that have funded the insurrection. One of his main donors is a guy by the name of Richard Uline, an Illinois-based shipping magnate, who was the largest funder of the Save America rally that preceded the insurrection on January 6th. He was the largest donor to the GOP in 2022. And 80 percent of his money went to Republicans who denied or questioned the 2022 results. So. Ari froze for a second there. Even Go ahead, Ari. You just froze for a minute. I got insurrection. So uh, Kelly's election is a very frightening prospect. Ari, talk about all that's at stake and the polls showing how significant abortion is when it comes to getting people out to vote. It looks like he's freezing. We're going to uh, switch over to audio um, to be able to hear Ari Berman, who's national voting rights correspondent for Mother Jones, who's written the report. This race could decide the fate of democracy in Wisconsin and the 2024 election. Let's see if we can hear him right now. Ari, can you hear us? Yes, Amy, can you hear me? Perfect, perfect. Um, this issue of right. abortion being a determinant of outcome, what the polls show about the issue um, getting people out to vote? It's a huge issue in Wisconsin because right now, currently in effect, Wisconsin has an abortion ban from 1849 that went into effect immediately after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That law from 1849 was passed one year after Wisconsin became a state by an all-male legislature. It's incredibly unpopular. Eighty percent of Wisconsinites oppose the abortion ban, but the heavily gerrymandered legislature refuses to change it. And so that's a huge issue in this race because Democrats and the, the administration of Governor Tony Evers are currently challenging the abortion ban in state court. And it's likely to come before the state Supreme Court. And Judge Protasiewicz has said that she supports a woman's right to choose. So it's very possible there are enough votes on the court if she wins to strike down the 1849 abortion ban in Wisconsin and restore reproductive rights in the state. 
And Ari, could you talk about how the Wisconsin Supreme Court has been vital in the GOP efforts at voter suppression and gerrymandering and uh, also in terms of dismantling campaign finance laws? Well, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, with its conservative majority, has really been a driver of efforts to undermine democracy in Wisconsin. They have upheld basically every law passed by the legislature to entrench their own power. That includes some of the most gerrymandered maps in the country. That includes a series of laws making it harder to vote, such as a strict voter ID law, outlawing drop boxes, things of that nature. Wisconsin dismantled, basically, the Republicans dismantled, basically, some of the best campaign finance laws in the country. That's why there's been so much spending on the state Supreme Court election. That was also upheld um, by the state Supreme Court. So really, every time the state Supreme Court under conservative control has been asked whether or not they want to expand democracy or constrict democracy, they have fallen on the side of constricting democracy. And that's why the state Supreme Court election is potentially so significant, because it really is the only way to restore checks and balances in Wisconsin. Wisconsin already has a Democratic governor and a Democratic attorney general, but they have very little power because of the gerrymandered legislature's grip on the state. And the only way to get rid or to try to weaken the gerrymandered legislature's grip on the state is for those gerrymandered maps to be challenged and for there to be a branch of government that can actually challenge the legislature. Because right now all the governor can do is veto the legislature's laws. But if the Wisconsin Supreme Court upholds those laws, then it's very difficult for there to be meaningful democracy in the state of Wisconsin. And finally, Ari Berman, there's also a state Senate seat open. There is, yeah. And that's very important because that's going to determine whether Senate Republicans have a two-thirds supermajority. If they get a two-thirds supermajority, they can then impeach state officials. And they've already talked about impeaching Judge Protasiewicz, potentially, if she wins the election today, which would be a really incredible power seizure. People are basically saying that would be a coup against democracy if progressives were to get a majority in the state Supreme Court. And then Republicans, because of their gerrymandered supermajority, would then try to impeach the judge that created that progressive majority. That would probably create some kind of constitutional crisis in the state of Wisconsin. Ari Berman, want to thank you for being with us, national voting rights correspondent for Mother Jones. Again, we'll link to your report, This Race Could Decide the Fate of Democracy in Wisconsin and the 2024 Election. Well, we're continuing with elections. Today, the special runoff election for Chicago mayor, where voters are choosing between two Democrats from different ends of the political spectrum. Brandon Johnson, organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union, and Paul Vallis, the former head of Chicago Public Schools, who's endorsed by the Chicago Police Union. Randy Weingarten, the president of AFT, American Federation of Teachers, has been in Chicago campaigning to back Johnson and criticize Paul Vallis. Uh, we thought we had a clip of Randy Weingarten, which we'll play in a minute. But Chicago is the third largest city in the United States. And today's runoff mayor election has drawn national attention. Juan, you're in Chicago. You've had these mayoral forum that you have been presiding over. Talk about the significance of this day. 
Well, Amy, I'm still getting accustomed and learning the intricacies of uh, local Chicago politics, but clearly this race uh, has the national implications as well. It raises the question of can a uh, progressive multiracial coalition capture the mayoralty in uh, the in the nation's third largest city, uh, as Harold Washington did so 40 years ago, back in 1983. Uh, and the issues between the two so supposed Democratic candidates are clear. Uh, they're, they're, Vallis is a centrist who, whose main focus throughout the campaign has been crime, crime and crime. Uh, and he's back increasing uh, and backing the police department, increasing the number of police. Uh, he doesn't has not placed as much emphasis, however, on another aspect of his uh, his long-term policies, which have been the further privatization of public schools and the creation of more charter schools. Uh, and he's received major backing from the police unions and wealthy developers, real estate developers in the city. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Brandon Johnson is a progressive who backs, uh, backs police reform, uh, uh, alternatives uh, to policing, uh, supports and defends, obviously, public education and taxing the rich. But the polls so far are showing there was just one by Northwestern University a week ago, a very close race. Uh, about 44 percent of uh, voters are appear to be backing uh, Brandon Johnson, 44 percent Vallis, with about 12 percent uh, undecided. Uh, so what's going to be critical today is going to be obviously one turnout. Uh, because uh, the undecideds will uh, will have a big impact. But the question is, who turns out to vote? Uh, and uh, also, what happens among uh, Latino voters? And I think this has not gotten uh, quite as much attention. When Harold Washington ran back in 1983, he got uh, a big majority of the Latino vote. But back then, there were only uh, Latinos only represented about 16 percent of the city's population. Today, they represent 29 percent of the city's population, uh, uh, almost double what it uh, 40 years ago. And uh, and Johnson has uh, 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 is not faring well uh, so far, according to the polls. We don't know for sure because the polls are often wrong. Uh, but according to these polls, Vallis has considerable support among Latinos, about 46 percent to 35 percent. He's he's got just uh, uh, about 41, 51 percent of the um, of, of support among white voters. Uh, and uh, and J Brandon Johnson has a healthy majority among African-American voters, but not the overwhelming number that uh, that Harold Washington had um, 40 years ago. One of the thing, big things that's happened is many of the made uh, many of the mayoral candidates, African-American mayoral candidates in the first round, have, are backing Vallis. Sophia King, Jamal Green, Edward Sawyer, Willie Wilson, they all ran for mayor in the first round, and they've all come out to back Vallis. In fact, the only candidate who ran for uh, for mayor in the Latino community, Jesus Chuy Garcia, is the only one of the candidates who is backing Brandon Johnson. Uh, so uh, it remains to be seen what happens in the Latino community. Unfortunately, I think uh, Johnson has made a big mistake in not highlighting uh, the support of Chuy Garcia. And what's happened is, according to the polls, about a third of Latino voters actually believe that Vallis is a Latino. Uh, uh, he's a, actually a uh, descendant from Greek-American uh, Greek uh, immigrants and uh, 
and so the reality is that there's confusion in the Latino community. There has not been enough outreach uh, from the Johnson campaign. So it remains to be seen how the turnout will uh, will um, will develop throughout the rest of the day. And we'll see what happens. And this is Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers. I watch Paul Vallis ruin the New Orleans school system. <laughs> teachers in New Orleans. I watched Paul Vallis divide and divide and tear that community apart and tear the Philadelphia community apart. I watched him do it. And could there be any better indicator of where Paul Vallis stands than for Betsy DeVos is Pack. I don't care what he says. For Betsy DeVos and her pack to come in and support Paul Vallis tells you everything you need to know about him. Brandy the Weingarten is head of AFT. Arnie Duncan, the former education secretary under Obama, and Senator Dick Durbin supported Vallis. At the same time, you have Senators Warren and Bernie Sanders, right, one coming out for um, uh, coming out um, for uh, um, uh, Bernard Johnson. For, for Brandon Johnson. Yes, Brandon. absolutely. This is really a classic uh, battle within the Democratic Party between progressives uh, and uh, and the more conservative and centrist forces uh, in the party. But we'll see now who is actually being able to reach uh, the masses of the voters and turn them out uh, into in today's election. Well, we want to thank you, Juan, for giving us that briefing. Of course, we're going to ask you about what happens tomorrow. Coming up, Finland joins NATO. Stay with us. Why club told me call 911? But who do you call when the ambulances don't come? Or watch as the ones sworn by law to protect us. Won't fully convict us, then call the corrections. Next, they build the banks up when we in recession. And hang us in the jail cell so they can swing the elections. I walk Chicago streets with potholes is deep and Tahoe's creep like TLC. Hospital workers and scrubs with no PPE, but they got money for riot gear. We dying here, yeah. You tell me not to move with my gun, but we got more funeral homes than schools where I'm from and on the news. All you view is homicides. Tell me why it ain't no trauma units when everybody traumatized. Trying to get on your feet, playing a hand they dealt you. If your house is not a home, let this song be your shelter, shelter, shelter. I'll be your shelter. Shelter by Vic Mensa, Chance the Rapper, and Wyckoff John. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Finland's formally joining NATO today in a move that doubles NATO's border with Russia. Finland and Russia share an 800-mile border. Finland's joining the military alliance a week after Turkey's parliament voted to ratify its membership. Turkey and Hungary have yet to approve Sweden as a member of NATO. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has rejected Sweden's accession to 
NATO after accusing it of harboring Kurdish dissidents he considers terrorists and want extradited. Finland and Sweden has applied together to join NATO. They did in May of 2022, about three months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking today. Today is an historic day because in a few hours we will welcome Finland as the 31st member of our alliance. This will make Finland safer and NATO stronger. By becoming a member, uh, Finland uh, will get an ironclad security guarantee. Uh, Article 5, our collective defense clause, one for all for one, will now from today apply for Finland. The Kremlin has decried Finland joining NATO as a, quote, assault on our security, unquote. On Monday, Russian authorities announced they'll beef up its military presence in northwestern Russia. We're joined now by two guests. Reiner Brown is the former executive director of the International Peace Bureau, a German peace activist, historian and author who's campaigned against the U.S. air base in Rammstein and against NATO. He's joining us from Berlin. And in Helsinki, Finland, we're joined by Alfa Harnie. He is a Finnish politician uh, currently serving in the Parliament of Finland for the Green League at the Helsinki constituency. Um, let's begin uh, with Alta Harjane. Uh, you are with the Green Party in Finland. It used to be opposed to joining NATO, but switched last year. Can you talk about why you feel today is so significant? Today is, of course, significant, as, as we heard Mr. Stoltenberg uh, talk there, that, that it's a historic day as, as Finland joins the alliance. And, uh, and I think we see it necessary in the time, but also not just guaranteeing and helping out uh, to boost our security, but also us contributing more to the security of, of whole Europe. Uh, yeah, and, and the Green Party, we used to be a bit dubious uh, uh, towards the membership, of course, everything changed uh, in February 2020, and uh, and there has been a, a kind of like a also vocal uh, vocal proponents of NATO for years already, me included, for example. But but yeah, everything pretty much changed uh, with the Russian attack in Ukraine. And and what is your response to? Uh to the Russian position that the continued expansion of uh, NATO further uh, eastward uh, is actually a threat uh, to Russia's security? Well, uh, I think it's very typical paranoid speech and the narrative of Kremlin, that it's kind of like a some kind of surrounded fo fortress. Uh, the fact is that NATO is purely defensive alliance for the for, for Europe and uh, and of course uh, it's the accession to NATO is, is based on each country's voluntary choice to do so so it's uh, a purely I think uh, paranoid framing narrative that is that the main audience is actually the domestic audience there. When you say purely defensive, I, I, I would think that people who uh, live in uh, Serbia or in uh, Libya might question whether NATO is purely a defensive uh, alliance. Yep, well, that is, uh, that is true. Of course, NATO has been uh, uh, ha having a role also in, in this, uh, this, like, uh, these operations. Uh, but looking at from the perspective of Finland joining uh, the alliance, 
this is seen as, as completely uh, a defensive act uh, in order to kind of boost the European security as a whole. NATO as such poses no threat to Russia militarily, only in terms of securing uh, defense and thus kind of providing a, a certain stop and limit for Russian uh, aggression and, and, and the idea of creating this sphere of influence with aggressive uh, policies or even with uh, violence. Rona Brown, if you can respond from Berlin to what is happening today, um, Finland joining NATO, um, your response? You know, it is not an historical day. The day today is the end of a longer story. Finland was all the last years a part of the NATO command and control system, a part of many NATO exercises, including NATO troops in Finland, and enlarging their military budget to over 2%, like NATO. So it is the end of the militarization of Finland and the whole region. And this day is not historical. It is a breakthrough of the history of Finland. This was a neutral country, for my understanding, with a lot of successes in peacekeeping missions, in having big international peace events like the Helsinki Conference for 1975. This time is over. And for what? For having more Russian troops nearer to the border? For having maybe even nuclear weapons on both sides? Now they are saying only on the Russian side are new nuclear weapons. But let us wait for two or three years. And this makes it again a step for the escalation in Europe and not a peaceful step. And friendly speaking, to say NATO is a defense military alliance. Have you forgotten Libya? Have you forgotten Afghanistan? Have you forgotten Yugoslavia? I think this is really stupid. And let me say one more sentence to NATO. NATO said it's a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is not any longer true. NATO is the biggest military alliance in the world, with main focus also surrounding China, with all the new agreements with Japan, uh, South Korea, Malaysia, Philippines, and an end. So it is the biggest, historically biggest military alliance in the world. And it is not definitely making peace. It is even creating many problems for peace and security. Can you talk, uh, uh, Ryder Brown, about the uh, significance of the German vice chancellor's surprise visit to Kiev? You know, again, you know, quite all the members of the German parliament were visiting Kiev up to now. And the minister of economy was missing. And what he is doing, he was going with the big industry of our country. Because in the redeveloping of the country, in the reconstruction of the country, Ukraine, also the German industry wants to earn a lot of money. Like we are the profiteur of all the new developments in East Germany and in East Europe. And that is the main reason that he is going. And the interesting point is that they are discussing about the reconstruction of Ukraine. But what is needed for the reconstruction of Ukraine? The first step must be ceasefire and negotiations. So hopefully the minister Habeck will come to the great idea to support our position that immediately ceasefire and negotiation for Ukraine are needed, that we can start with the reconstruction of this heavily destroyed country. 
Rona Brown, if you can talk about the proposal put forward by German politicians um, for a negotiation that um, the Ukrainian president Zelensky rejected this weekend. You know, interestingly, he rejected our appeal by his deputy foreign minister, but he's supporting the suggestions from China, which are quite of the same level, saying we need negotiations for overcoming this brutal war. And the idea behind it is that no one can win this war militarily. So the alternative is continuing of day-to-day killing, we have more than 200,000 dead people up to now. And when we are thinking about the so-called military spring offensives, we will have maybe again the same number. What is the alternative? The alternative is not to accept the actual situation, but to stop the war and start for negotiations about a new development in Ukraine and a new peace process in Europe. And our suggestion is that it's impossible to do this from the European perspectives because the European countries, but all, are deeply engaged in the war by training the Ukrainian soldiers, by sending weapons, by spy offensives and by security purposes. So the only possibility is that we have an international peace coalition coming from the global south being the moderator or mediator for peace process. And... This is why we are saying we are supporting the suggestion of Brazil and China, Indonesia and India to develop such a peace coalition. And we hope that this peace coalition will get the support of the government of Germany and France. In any case, we will work for this. And this could create an atmosphere for coming to negotiations and for stopping these day-to-day killing and for opening the door for a peaceful and better future for Ukraine, but for the whole Europe, because the alternative is the escalation. And we see it with the depleted uranium. We see it with the new nukes in Belarus. We have step by step escalating the situation, which has the danger to lead to a nuclear war. The alternative is negotiations and ceasefire. And I'd like to bring in uh, Ateharnye again to talk about the, this issue of is a ceasefire and negotiations uh, possible toward a, a diplomatic solution of the war? You've advocated uh, in the past pushing European governments to offer more military weaponry to Ukraine. Yeah, and uh, uh, I think the clear thing is here that negotiations over peace, uh, about peace cannot be done over the heads of the Ukrainians. Ukraine is a sovereign nation being under uh, criminal assault by Russia. So we have to avoid this false symmetry in the situation. About escalation, it pretty much seems that Russia is kind of just using the escalation thing as a basis to try to limit the support for Ukraine. And we should make sure that as democratic Western countries, we make sure that we help Ukrainians to protect their own sovereignty, their own human lives, their freedom, and also the values that we hold dear. But of course, in the end, after war comes peace. And we have to make sure that there's, there is room for peace, but it cannot be negotiated over Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainians. So they have, ha- have, have, they have had to say over the, over the terms. 
And in the meantime, it's very important to keep the military support and the civil support on a level that helps the Ukrainians to gain the upper hand and maintain the upper hand in this war, which is completely, uh, uh, completely the, the whole responsibility over the, over the war lies in Russia and in Kremlin. Uh, Alta Haryane, if you can also talk about the election that just took place in Finland, you have a new prime minister, correct me if I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, Petri Orpo, who eked out a victory at 20.8 percent of the vote, um, center-right National Coalition Party, against um, the prime minister Marin's party, the center-left Social Democrats, who got almost 20 percent. These are very small numbers. Um, what does this mean for Finland? Well, uh, I think it means uh, a, a kind of turn towards a more conservative right-wing uh, path. Uh, I think the main issue here is the economy. So, kind of the uh, how the, the make sure that we uh, or the, the the prime goal of the of the new prime minister is is to combat the debt of, of and, and balance the economy uh, of Finland. Uh, so that's that's been the, the main issue regarding <coughs> regarding the elections, regarding foreign and security policy. Uh, as, as you know, the NATO decision in Finland was done with overwhelming majority. Uh, no parliamentary body or party uh, has been opposing really the the accession. So probably that or it's clear that the the, the foreign and security, security policy line, the idea that we're committed to NATO. And, uh, and also committed to support Ukraine. Uh, I don't see any major changes there. Um, Prime Minister Marin, uh, she actually she did eke out of, out of victory, that so that her party gained more seats, which is quite uh, unusual for a sitting prime minister. Uh, and she's still, as a person, like, uh, gained a massive amount of votes in her constituency. But uh, but yeah, so the issue rather is, is domestic and largely economic and, and uh, regional economic uh, matters that, that really uh, then uh, decided the vote, so to say. As, um, Reiner Braun, we only have about, a, about 30 seconds or so, but could you talk about the anti-war movement in Germany, your plans for April and how the German media is covering the war in Ukraine? You know, we have we are in front of our Easter marches. We will have ten thousand of people on the street during the next days. That are one step of our big activities. And you know, we are following up the big activities in Munich and Berlin in the beginning of the year. But to my colleague, he has a misunderstanding of the war. It is not only Russia and Ukraine in the war. It's a proxy war and a civil war. And to say the whole responsibility lies by by Russia. These underestimate the development to the war, and I think this is a really big mistake not to see what's happening with the Minsk agreement and why our chancellor and Macron was lying about the Minsk agreement and don't want to make it. So I think it is really very much too easy to say that the whole responsibility lies by Russia. Rainer Brown, we're going to have to leave war. it there. We thank you so much, former executive yes. director of the International Peace Bureau and Auta Haryane, a Green Member of Parliament in Finland. I'm Amy Goodman Juan Gonzalez.